Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Behind the Money with the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. General Electric. It was an original member of the Dow Jones Industrial Average when the index was first created in 1896. At its peak in the year 2000, the industrial conglomerate had a market capitalization of nearly $600 billion. But GE has lost a lot of that value in the last 18 years. Today, that market capitalization figure is just $118 billion. And after decades of deal-making... A weakening power sector is forcing the company's executives to consider some radical changes. So today on the show, we're looking at how GE rose to become one of the greatest names in American business and what triggered its subsequent fall. Here's what we know. We just learned it literally in the last hour. GE is pretty close to a deal for Alstom. Could be announced as soon as next week. Price tags in the range of about $13 billion U.S. They're still negotiating, hammering out some final details. Bloomberg got the story first in uh, April of 2014. I vividly remember running around the newsroom. You know, when it flashed up, Bloomberg got the story. Could be there. Was it true? And so I think we were able to um, confirm it, though, fairly quickly that it was indeed true. Shares in French transport and energy giant Alstom surged as markets digested the announcement that the company has reacted positively to General Electric's 10 billion euro bid for its energy arm. The big question is, could a takeover by a US company get the approval of the French government and unions? And then it caused a whole furore in France and was then a long battle for GE to, to win Alstom. Ed Crooks is the U.S. industry and energy editor for the Financial Times. It was one of the crown jewels of French industry. It was the big French company making equipment for power generation, a great name in France, employed a lot of people in France and indeed around the world. There was a national pride issue. There was a question of, do we want to sell this company out to foreigners? And there was also a very practical consideration about jobs and the question of, obviously, given GE being in quite similar areas, would there be rationalization? Would there be job cuts? Would there be factory closures? And that was something there was a lot of concern about in France. And so GE had to tread very carefully and do a very good job of salesmanship in order to get the French government to agree to the deal. And finally, they got the deal done and it closed in early November of 2015. So about 18 months it took them from the time that the, the story first broke to when they managed to finally get it closed. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to the history of GE. How did the company first get started? So 
GE was the company uh, really created by Thomas Edison. It's sort of the predecessor company, GE, was set up by Thomas Edison to generate electricity. It made equipment to generate electricity and to sell it, first of all, in Manhattan. He had a power station not too far from here on Pearl Street in Lower Manhattan, and it generated power there and distributed it to banks and homes and businesses and, and things in that area of Lower Manhattan. That was the base from which it then grew into an enormously diverse and wide-ranging conglomerate. They got into the train business, they made locomotives, they um, made domestic appliances, fridges, freezers, washing machines, and so on. And then they got into jet engines, because the technology for making a jet engine is actually not all that different from the turbine that you use to generate electricity. And so that then also became a very successful business for them. They then got into uh, healthcare and medical equipment, and then into financial services. And sometimes there was you could sort of see the logic of the progression. So they started off in financial services, essentially financing people's purchases of their goods. They said, that we will lend you the money so you can buy buy a GE product, including consumer finance. If you want to buy a GE washing machine, we'll lend the money for that. And then that grew and grew and grew into a huge global financial services empire where they did mortgages and consumer credit, credit cards, and you know, a lot of different things for different markets around the world. They went to insurance. They had a big insurance business. They went to plastics. And then all kinds of, again, really sort of weird things like they were a broadcaster. They owned NBC for a long time. Again, you could sort of see the synergy maybe between Radio transmitters exactly and so that, forth. Exactly that, and broadcasting, and then bought a film studio and theme park business. They bought Universal Studios, um, so they had NBC Universal for a while. And so it became a group really without very much logic about why it existed as a company. There was nothing really that tied all the different businesses together, except they were all part of the same group, and except they all had the same CEO. Jack Welch is known as a tough CEO, demanding, visionary, brutally frank. He was absolute sort of rock star, seen as a brilliant man for the way that he could identify businesses and improve them. He would buy companies, cut costs, turn them around, improve profitability. He was a great advocate of what's known as the Six Sigma system, which you may well have heard of this idea. He didn't originate it. He borrowed it from Motorola, but it's a kind of a, a, a quality management system, which he applied across GE and supposedly had great results. It's hard to know in hindsight how much of that reputation is really deserved and how much is inflated in that it's clear there were genuine improvements in, in the businesses that he bought. But it was also very easy while he ran the company and had such a great reputation. It was very easy for him to borrow money at very low rates or to use uh, GE's shares, which had a very high PE ratio. It was high to buy companies at low prices, make great value deals, and then increase the profitability of GE that way. And so there's always a sense that maybe he was building a bit of a house of cards, as I say, built on this incredible reputation that he had. When did this strategy of, I guess, sort of growth by M&A that, that was so associated with Jack Welch, when did people start to realize that he might have just been building this house of cards, as you say? So the thing that really revved up GE in the final days of Jack Welch's tenure was the dot-com boom. Somewhat implausibly, though, it may seem now, because this was a company that made fridges and washing machines and sold insurance and plastics and had an old-fashioned TV business and made jet engines. But dot-com mania was absolutely uh, sweeping the country and indeed the world in that the second half of the 1990s. And being 
a great salesman as he was and, and a great, very charismatic communicator, which was able to get across the idea that GE was in some way a part of this great dot-com boom and it was going to be able to benefit from all these amazing changes that the internet was bringing and i think and certainly when some of the when some of the air started to run out of the dot-com hype in that 2000 2001 period i think ge was definitely affected by that and that was when people started to question jack welch and was he really quite as brilliant as he seemed and that was something that was going on even before he finally left the company in 2001 So Jack Welch steps down, Jeff Immelt takes that chief executive role. Was Immelt tasked with, I guess, sort of turning things around? Or, or what was his mandate by this point? There was some skepticism creeping in, there were some doubts. But I don't think at all Jeff Immelt had a mandate for radical change at that point. And also, of course, don't forget, he was Jack Welch's hand-picked successor. Welch had had a, a great role in choosing who was going to succeed him, arguably not best corporate governance practice, but that was the way it had happened. And so I think a lot of people were really looking to Jeff Immelt just to carry on the kind of success that Jack Welch had had and to be another version of him. But the real shock then was the financial crisis. And that, that was the point where when the crisis hit, it was absolutely uh, devastating for GE. The shares collapsed. Credit rating was cut, lost its AAA credit rating, which it had had since way back. And I think that was when everyone realized that something had to change. It was very seductive. Financial services was an easy way to make money. It was an easy way to get growth. You could kind of not worry about the risks. It would be great for 20 years. And then every 20 years it would go bang. It's hard then to think about that in advance and to have the courage and the discipline to say, hey, there is a lot of risk here. We need to reduce that risk. If we carry on down this road, we're going to potentially lose a lot of money. So we should give up these nice, easy profits we're getting at the moment and do something else. That was a hard decision to take. They finally chose to press that button in April of 2015. And that did seem like a very sensible thing to do at the time. Markets for a lot of those businesses had improved. They got very good prices for some of them when they sold them. But then the question was, what happened to the money that he raised that way and what was left of the, the remainder of GE, as I say, without that, the earnings from, from financial services to hold it up. And this is roughly around the same time GE's trying to close the Alstom deal, which was going to shift the business focus to almost entirely industrials, specifically at least to power. How did that go? The big problem with Alstom, and therefore then really fundamentally the big problem with GE as a whole, was that they just hadn't seen how the market was changing, the market for power generation equipment in particular. So G had always been historically very strong in gas-fired power. Alstom was strong in coal-fired power. Between the two of them, they were one of the dominant players in the markets for fossil fuel power generation worldwide. And that seemed like a great position to be in because, of course, fossil fuels still still provide 80% of the world's energy. We are still totally dependent on fossil fuels for everything that we do. Most power is generated by fossil fuels around the world and so on. So if you're one of the biggest players in the biggest source of electricity in the world, that's a great position to be in, you would think. But what they kind of underappreciated, I think, is how the market was shifting, which is the difference between 
the kind of the stock of where the capital is now and the flow of where new investment is coming. So although the stock was still very heavily concentrated in fossil fuels, the flow, it turned out, was moving increasingly to renewables. Cost of wind and solar power had been absolutely collapsing. There was a lot of overcapacity in the market for solar panels, and so the prices of those really slumped. Technology was advancing very steadily for wind power as well, bringing the costs of that down a lot. So having been much more expensive than gas and coal generating power, they became increasingly competitive. That plus the fact that they had a lot of policy support still and and countries worried about climate change was supporting investments in renewables meant that renewables grew to be a larger share of the new investment in power generation. And they just seemed not really to appreciate how quickly things were going to change. The then head of G's power division gave a presentation in March of 2017 where he said, I think our profits this year can be up 10% or more. Uh, Fine. In fact, as it turned out, when the the final uh, results for that year came out, profits were actually down 45%. So they'd called it completely wrong. And they had, in fact, taken on inventory and they'd got kind of geared up and prepared for a business that was actually going to be much bigger than what, in fact, it turned out to be. And so what ultimately happened with Alstom and, and GE's new, bigger power division? It became clear really in kind of the middle of 2017 that the power division was not going to achieve great results that year. Uh, Jeff Immelt decided to step down. He'd been there for 16 years. It was kind of coming. People knew that he'd be thinking about leaving. And he was replaced by John Flannery, who had been running the healthcare business, which had been one of the more successful divisions of GE. And he was very much part of the strategy. He was certainly close to Jeff Immelt and had been very much wanting to pursue the same strategy that Jeff Immelt had been pursuing. And so rather as Jeff Immelt had been seen as continuity from Jack Welch, uh, John Flannery then in turn was seen as the kind of the continuity appointment after Jeff Immelt. He did start to change things fairly quickly. He changed a lot of the senior management. There was a new chief executive was appointed to the power division, who then sort of quickly in that second half of of last year started talking about the problems that they had, started acknowledging they're going to have to take pretty radical action to fix them. In December of 2017, they announced that they'd be cutting 12,000 jobs from that division because they really needed to cut costs to adjust to the diminished size of the market that they were facing. And so that program was starting to work through but it was not showing results quickly. And so having fallen by 45% last year, in the first half of this year, profits from that division were down again by 52%. So it was not really showing any signs of an upturn. And it became clear that the market was not getting any better. And then they came to the point of two weeks ago, I guess you would say this started, where they decided that they were going to have to write off all of the goodwill in that power division. It, in practice, what it, uh, the way it's calculated is it's the difference between the amount you pay for an acquisition 
and the asset value of that acquisition. In the case of GE and Alstom, it was $17 billion was the goodwill in that acquisition, which is quite a feat given that GE only paid $10 billion. So effectively what they were saying was that the Alstom businesses, when they bought them, had a negative asset value of $7 billion, to give that difference of 17 Anyway, there was a good chunk of goodwill put on the balance sheet, and GE said, having sort of done a review of this, and is that really worth anything, and is this really an asset we should have on the balance sheet from which we should expect to earn future earnings? The answer is no, it isn't. It's basically worthless. And so they announced then last week they were going to do that, and also announced that they were replacing their chief executive. John Flannery was out. GE announcing a new CEO, Larry Culp, will remain uh, will become uh, the uh, chairman and CEO of the company, taking over from John Flannery. Just uh, they are announcing he's been named to this post by unanimous vote by the GE board of directors, effective immediately. So, if I'm thinking about what lies ahead for Larry Culp, new chief executive, and what he has to do with GE. I mean, this is a company that's been able to rely on several business segments for its overall performance for many of these years, at least in sort of modern history of General Electric. What does the GE of the future look like when it's not this big industrial conglomerate anymore? Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, there's a whole load of arguments against being a conglomerate business in that it can be hard to see where the money is going to and coming from. You can make bad decisions about what really needs investment and what doesn't. And it's hard for anyone to master the company. It's absolutely unrealistic to to expect that any chief executive would really have kind of in-depth and thoughtful knowledge about theme parks and also plastics manufacturing and also consumer credit and also jet engines. It's ridiculous beyond the scope of uh, of any uh, one individual to to really kind of um, understand those things properly. However, as you say, one of the nice things about conglomerates, and it's not always a nice thing for the shareholders, but it's a nice thing for the management of these companies, is they are more stable because when one part of the uh, of the company is doing badly, the other parts of the company might be doing well and can carry it through. And G is moving away from that model. So having pulled out of financial services. They are then slimming down. They've kind of uh, semi-detached themselves from their transport business. And John Flannery, uh, the previous uh, chief executive, said that he was going to take two more radical steps. They have a controlling stake in the company called Baker Hughes, the oil field services group. He said they're going to get rid of that. And he also talked about selling or spinning off the healthcare division, which, again, has been one of the more successful parts of the company. So if you do that, you leave GE really then with only two businesses, which are its power equipment, which means all these fossil fuel power generation businesses, also um, grid equipment, stuff like that. Also a renewable business. And it's worth pointing out, GE hasn't completely missed the renewables boat. They they make wind turbines. They have been very successful in wind turbines. They're the world's fourth largest manufacturer of wind turbines. So they've got some business there, although it doesn't really match up to the kind of dominant position that they had in, in gas-fired power. And then uh, aviation, aero engines, and other bits of electronics uh, and so on, things that go with that and go into aircraft. So that then makes you a much less diversified business. Then you've only got, you've got still a lot of commitments. They have a pension fund they have to keep stocked. They have debts that they have to pay and so on. And they're a much more risky proposition now than they used to be simply by being more focused on those two industries and so 
that really then makes it important that you get those two businesses right. And so, again, when you think about Larry Culp, new chief executive, and what his agenda is going to be and what his priorities are going to be, sorting out the power division is going to be very important. Ed, you've given us a pretty thorough overview of of the history of GE. Is there a lesson in all of this that really stands out to you? I think the lesson I take from the history of GE is really kind of summed up in the Alstom acquisition, actually. It's kind of, it was not the only mistake that GE ever made. It wasn't even necessarily the worst mistake that GE ever made. Some of the deals in financial services were really horrendous. But it does speak to a couple of kind of key points, I think, about the business. One is that M&A is not the answer to every problem. And I think that was a kind of a trap they fell into, particularly under Jack Welch. Having that mystique, seeming like the great wizard of management, uh, he could do everything through deal-making, and deal-making would always be a success. If you don't have Jack Welch there, deal-making is not always a success. Deal-making is very often a failure. And I think it took GE a long time to recognize that. And I think then the other thing is the change in the energy business and just how radically the energy business has changed. And I don't want to pretend that renewables are going to be everything in the world of energy. We're not going to 100% renewable energy system anytime soon. But the electricity industry genuinely has changed. And it has changed very rapidly. And people who didn't understand how quickly it was changing and the direction it was changing in have been caught out and have lost a lot of money. And people talk about the energy transition and people talk about climate change and transforming transforming the world into a uh, renewable energy system in quite a kind of theoretical kind of way. And people sort of think about it as something, eh, maybe it will happen one day and this is all very interesting and let's uh, scratch our chins about it. In the case of GE, it's happened very directly, very quickly, and has had real consequences. It's had huge consequences for GE's investors. It's had huge consequences for the company's employees and for its executives as well. And I think that's a very important lesson for everybody to think about then is to appreciate the way that an industry can change that fast and to think where might it happen next. That is the lesson I think from GE and that's the thing that everyone ought to be thinking about when they consider that story. Thank you, Ed. Thank you. You can read much more from Ed on GE and the broader shift that's happening in global industrials at FT.com. And it would be a great help if you could leave us a review for the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps us improve the show from week to week, and it also helps others find out about us. You can also send us an email about what you think we should cover next. Email us at behindthemoney at ft.com. We'll be back next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.